the same old tune, fiddle and guitar. Where do we take it from here? Rhinestone suits and new shiny cars. It's been the same way for years. We need to change. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 88. On this episode, I have Brent Carlson. Uh, Brent is... Uh, known as Trader Brent on Twitter, and he also has a podcast called Dryline Farmer Podcast. So, Brent, man, it's awesome to have you on my podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Casey. It's uh, really an honor to be asked to be on. I listened to your last couple podcasts, and it's uh, you've got a unique setup on uh, on your subject matter. But uh, So uh, we're kind of kind of two different types of podcasts. Yours is informative, and mine's completely pointless. So uh, we've both got that going for us. <laughs> so I was... I had an opportunity to uh, start listening to you. I heard you on uh, Ag Uncensored era, Jared McDaniel. And one day, and I was, my son mows grass, so I help him, I help him mow. And I was flipping through there, and I, I heard him on there. So I thought, man, this guy's pretty funny. I'll check out his podcast. And, and he brought up a, a couple old uh, shows that I used to listen to quite a bit. And, and you're, uh, you, have an, you have a character on there called Radar Ricardo, and that dude makes me laugh because it's just like that. Just like the old the old show I used to listen to there, and, and with the characters and stuff. So, talk a little bit about your podcast and, and kind of what your podcast's all about. Well, my podcast is really kind of to steal steal a uh, line from Seinfeld. It's pretty much a show about nothing because uh, we don't talk about anything just in particularly important to society or the you know the furtherance of the human race at all. So, uh, but now I started it back in uh, back in November of 2017 which is always a really good time to start something during harvest when you're, uh, out on the, uh, out on the combine all, all afternoon. But, uh, no, I started it, you know, we, we've been in this just epic drought right here, right here where our farm is. And, uh, I've always been a pretty big, pretty big smart aleck and I, it never really got me very far. So I figured, you know what, I might as well put it to use and, uh, see where it takes me. So I fired up this podcast and, uh, I did the first few episodes by myself and then I uh, brought on a, a good friend of mine that, to become a co-host, and when he got on, it really, really uh, made a made the show go a whole lot easier, and it was a whole lot more fun for me, anyway. But um, we uh, we started doing it's just we really just try to make people laugh is the main thing, and uh, I you know I've got farmer in the in the title, and um, you know we I started off trying to do quite a bit of farm you know people that stuff that farmers would relate to and uh, could get a laugh out of, and I'm like you know what we farmers you know we hear we talk farm all the time and uh so i'm like you know we've got to we got to branch out and really get a really get a whole menagerie of different subjects so i mean for instance you know we had a we we ranked who the hottest golden girl was here two three weeks ago and uh that was funny I enjoyed that. and uh i mean who's doing that casey i mean honestly who's ranking b arthur betty white you know who's do- nobody's doing that <laughs> i mean unless the moving iron podcast did an episode on it I'm not sure. I mean, y'all might have, you know, but uh, I'm like, you know, some people have got to relate to the hottest golden girl. I'm on a, <laughs> I'm on a board of directors for our retirement home here in, here in Hereford. And uh, we had our annual or our monthly meeting last week or a few weeks ago. And she was like, and of course I'm the youngest one in there by about 20 years. And so it's like, so Brent, what's your, what's y'all's topic this week? It's like, oh, we rank who the hottest golden girl was. <laughs> so, <laughs> And just the reaction of what the subject matter was, I'm like, man, this has got to be a no-brainer. So uh, I got a, I got a pretty good laugh at that. And uh, we just kind of, as far as, you know, producing the show, we always try to, you know, have something prepared. And we usually record it on Tuesday nights and we drop it on Wednesday mornings. And, uh, but, you know, so I'll kind of have a few notes and Landon, my co-host, will have a few notes, you know, over the weekend. And then, oh, like say Monday evening or something, we'll say, oh, dude, I just saw something. We got to do this or even one time he texted me on the way out to my house to record. It's like, Oh, I just saw something. So our notes are almost useless half the time because we change our mind literally, you know, one or two hours before we, we start recording. So, uh, it's, yeah, I'm sure sometimes it shows the lack the lack of preparation, but, um, you know, it's, I think that's what gives the podcast a little more natural feels. It's just, we just kind of start railing off on stuff and, kind of improv it and it's i mean it's edited we're not just you know we're not straight up robin williams improv you know we we're not quite that skillful so we do we do a little editing but uh yeah like you said you know you're listening to that radio show back in the day that phil hendry that the uh radio guy and he's i mean i try not to copy him obviously i I 
who all tried original material, but he really inspired me because I mean that was just funny stuff where he did all these fake voices and people called in thinking it was you know thinking it was real people. So I figured you know if I could do a handful of voices and uh, you know kind of do a little do sketches here and there and like I said we're all over the place. Sometimes we'll just do commentary and sometimes we've done sketches and uh, of different you know kind of Saturday Night Live type sketches and where we're it's almost a little scripted. And um, we do some pretty terrible impersonations of people. So I had Radar Ricardo. I did an impersonation of an impersonation one time. I Radar Ricardo did an impersonation of Trump, and it was it was pretty terrible. So I think it, it worked funny, out. Pretty good. It made me laugh. I was driving home. <laughs> and I was listening. To that. I was like, that's pretty funny. It made me laugh all the way all the way back. But yeah, it's so. a well, I'm, that like I said, that's always been my favorite. My most flattering compliment is when somebody says they almost wrecked or you know shot milk out their nose or something. That's always my, it's always my favorite uh, compliment. So yeah, I appreciate that. You never because the funny thing about it is you don't know like when you're listening to like you have your uh, your sponsors that you right. have and you make those up. I always wait like with anticipation here because I'm I'm like I don't know what this one's going to be and how it's going to play out. But it makes me laugh when you when you do the one that was. Uh, the under the table, uh, what was it? The corner, or the funeral home director, whatever it was. That was the uh, under- oh, under the table undertakers. I think. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that Actually, me, that made me laugh. You know, a lot of those things. I'm a well, like this week we did another funeral home commercial. Actually, it was fat ass burial plots. Uh, it was actually it was actually a true story I heard on the radio. And of course, I listen to talk radio all the time. I'm a junkie, but. Um, they were, oh, and this was over in England. They were actually digging these. They were, I don't know if it was the, the uh, cemetery itself or just the one company, but they were having to dig like they were running out of space. That was it. They were running out of space because all these oversized burial plots were having to be dug for all these fat slobs, you know. And, and uh, I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's that's a no brainer. We've got to do a commercial for, you know, wide body dead people. It, it was pretty, I mean, some of that stuff, it just writes itself, you know? So yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah I so can't, I can't, I can't credit myself for just all originality. I'd take some true life stories and, you know, put them to work. That was, that was a good one. That, that whole, their whole setup there makes just, is, is good fun. You know, you're, you're still hitting on, you kind of shoehorn in your, your farming aspect there for just a little bit. Cause you always like, okay, we got to talk about farming for just a minute, but then you jump into the rest of your show. So it's, that makes me right. It makes me laugh. I'm less and less attached to just being, you know, forcing myself to put in farming because, like, if I find something that's, you know, comical at the farm, yeah, I'll put it in. But, you know, if we're not just going to force it in there. And I mean, like I said, I know farmers, and there's like, and you found this. You're, you know, a big podcaster, and I mean, there's a million podcasts out there, and uh, you know, as much as, and I love podcasts more than anybody, and even I can only listen to, you know handful you know and then you're just kind of burned out and you were just flat run out of time like i listen to those big guys that do one every day and yeah. i only kind of and i finally learned that some of them you can listen to them at like one and a half speed or one and a quarter speed man that that really gets you through your day and that's i mean that's the great thing about this medium is like i can walk around with headphones all day and that makes the day go by a whole lot faster yeah so, uh, well, that's what i like about the podcast platform is that there's so many you know, everything is niched in the podcast. You know, there's <clears throat> there's very few, you know, there's not like the whole like political talk radio type stuff. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got their little niche that they're they're trying to hone in on and and it gives everybody an opportunity to go out and just listen to that, that long form conversation about whatever it is they're trying to find. Right. And that's like, you know, on ours, ours is usually 30 minutes or less. And you know, I figure, you know, that's about what my attention spans worth. So you know, especially on comedy, because I mean, you can run out of, you can lose people pretty fast if it gets pretty flat, falls flat and dry. So we got to keep ours pretty succinct and and uh, you know keep the keep the material pretty tight. Otherwise, you start losing folks. So uh, it's a, uh, but like you said, on the niche side, you know that's always been a big deal in agriculture. You know, farmers need to find their niche and stuff because just a broad market, you know, strategy as far as your farm. A lot of the times that you lose yourself in the in the expenses of just you know widespread macroeconomic stuff so yeah i love it it's it's a lot of fun my i you know we're growing you know kind of kind of steadily so we're still obviously real young in the game but uh i've you know i kind of got inspired by y'all and and a few other ag guys and i'm like you know i might not fit in with those guys so i figured i'd give it a shot but uh it's a lot of fun say the least you know it's a lot of fun i thoroughly enjoy it so all right man so let's uh let's talk about a few things here so 
Here you have, you're in a pretty epic drought, I think, beforehand. Uh, you were saying that you only had about two inches of rain since October last year. At that's your right, place. yeah. So that's got to be uh, weighing on your, uh, kind of how, you, how you're looking at your plan and, and how you're going to start looking at, at equipment and those kind of things down the road. So how's that affecting your decision-making process, and, and how do you, uh, how are you kind of overcoming all that? Well, I'll tell you, you know, we're, we're at a pretty – you know, our family, we all farm right right here next to each other. And uh, we're in a pretty uh, a good situation, I think, as far as equipment goes, especially because we all share the equipment. I've got two other brothers and then my dad's still farming and um, we all go in on equipment. And um, I mean, a lot, I know a lot of times people can say that can be problematic when you get, you know, a few hands there. There can be always be, you know, arguments and uh, incompatibilities. But we've been doing it for, gosh, we've been doing it together for about 20 years, you know roughly and um ever since all both me and my brothers and we all came back from college but um you know so that makes on my side of the planet that makes it a whole lot easier because we we farm quite a few acres you know we're not just huge but we farm quite a few so and um, another big thing is we've gone no-till so our equipment needs have really drastically decreased as it is but uh you know between uh i mean a you know self-propelled sprayer and and uh, we've got, you know, a couple combines. We've got a pretty good, pretty good size harvest, you know, harvest outfit for, for just our farm. But uh, for me, you know, being able to share that equipment is, is really key because, you know, the cost of just repairing the things, let alone, let alone, you know, trade them off for a new, you know, for a new updated version is, is pretty uh, cost prohibitive. So that in that uh, propelled sprayer we have, it's a case 3330 and we've had it for this is our sixth year and you know usually we're we're trading that thing about every five years but last couple of years have been pretty tough and we just hadn't seen a reason to trade it off yet it does the job and it's you know it gets across a lot of country and we've got a big you know 60 foot planter that uh you know row crop planter that we have and it's just of course it's pretty new but you know that kind of stuff you know you get in the several hundred thousand dollar range and you know a guy like me which i couldn't justify it anyway because i wouldn't have enough acres but once we start um, compiling all our acres together it really makes it a you know makes it a positive environment for the for the equipment so you know as far as looking forward you know on my plans between our no-till program and you know that's first of all that's the I, in my opinion that's the best thing we ever did on our farm we've been no-tilling since about 05 and we hadn't turned uh, turned any dirt over since then and our and our water water retention organic matter all that agronomic stuff that you've that people have heard over the years it's really has increased we can go further without you know with less water and uh where, where we're at there's quite a bit of competition on the irrigation uh we've got like on my farm i'm probably averaging on my i've got two we've got two different aquifers ogallala that's our main one our top one and you know where i'm at i'm averaging about less than 100 gallons per well whereas probably six to seven years ago i was averaging at least 130 and then we've got a an aquifer down below that that's even further that that goes and bottoms out around anywhere from 940 to a thousand feet, and uh, we've got uh, we've got a half a dozen wells that go into that. That it's just I've got one the one I have I've got one myself and it's just I mean it's just been a nightmare. I've drilled it in 08, and um, it's about a quarter million dollars to turn kit to drill it, case it, put a pump in it, motor panel, and everything. And, um, I mean, I've had just more hell with that thing. And, uh, you know, as far as equipment goes, I mean, that's obviously on the, on the list and, um, you know, it'll, it'll yield about, we thought it was going to yield 800 gallons when we drilled it. And the best it ever did was about five and a half. And now it's down to 350. and I've got it out of the, hopefully they're setting it today right now, but, um, it's just been a really tough, I couldn't really farm without it, but I tell you what, stuff like that, it's just, you can't have any mistakes because just to pull it, you know, pull it and set it out of the ground is about seven or eight grand. And that's before you even buy anything. And then you got to power the goofy thing. You know, if you run it all month, it's, it's a pretty stout electric bill. But, um, you know, we've, we've been fortunate. We've, we've contracted, you know, and priced quite a bit of our crop, especially our cotton. Uh, Cotton got really stout here about three weeks ago, got up in the nineties and we were fortunate enough to pull the trigger on some of it. And um, the cotton looks really good here, um, especially in that no-till situation. It's all in behind um, uh, corn stalks from last year. And we actually ran a vertical till rig, which we only kind of start up about the top inch um, where, uh, 
we could really get a better emergence. Because last year, of course, once again, these this year and last year were so different because last year it stayed cool and wet and and then but yet it was windy, so it was hard to get that cotton germinated and keep it wet um, with our pivots until it got established. So we had some pretty skippy stands this year. It probably would have worked this year like we did it last year without touching the field at all. But uh, we ran that vertical till rig and uh, we really got some loose dirt and that helped uh, helped our emergence sit since we're only planting that cotton seed about three quarters of an inch deep. And uh, so, um, you know, as far as our equipment needs, you know, we're pretty we're pretty lean on that. You know, we don't really need our plows anymore, discs. I mean, it's pretty much a planter, a sprayer, harvest equipment, you know, and and uh you know it's pretty that's the stuff that gets the most hours so we're we're pretty uh we're pretty lean on that and like i said being able to share that equipment across three entities is just uh you know that's that's very advantageous it makes it a lot more a uh, lot more workable for me and my brothers and my dad to all share that because this is pretty good size equipment and uh otherwise we couldn't justify justify buying stuff like that so you know we've got a our, one of our combines is an 8010 case and you know it's getting which about it's an 0708 model and it's you know we've i don't know what it's worth now it's probably you know 100 or something but you know we've we've uh revamped it and pretty much done everything replaced everything that wore in it and um that's a great thing you know on our tractors it we keep the hours pretty low since we're not we're not out there plowing so it's just uh it kind of all between the no-till, I mean, that really ties into that less equipment need for us anyway. And I know it may not work for everybody and it doesn't have to, but for our, for our operation, it's been really, it's been really advantageous. Okay. So now we've, we've, I kind of marked 2013 as the, uh, oh, kind of where the market turned, you know, you were coming off the highs of seven, $8 corn and, you know, everything, you know, soybeans are worth their weight in gold and everything else. And then it kind of started to slide from there. So here we are, five years after the fact, almost almost six years after the fact. <clears throat> how do you? Uh, how did you set your your farm up? You and your dad and your brother get your farm set up to where you were going to start looking at how you're going to start trading for equipment. How did that affect over that five year span? How did you start looking at? You know, this is what we need to do. This is what we don't need to do. You know, how, how did all that kind of play into that that five year span there? Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty basic economics. I mean, what kind of profit did we show? Um, you know, of course, 11, 11 was our just. I mean, it was a, just a wreck of a disaster as far as drought. We were we were over a hundred degrees for like seventy days in a row, and um, obviously there was no rain in between. And then the following year in twelve, we um, you know it wasn't as bad. It was still a pretty hard drought. It wasn't near as hot, but uh, so we had we had two uh, two pretty tough years in there and. And I don't know, I'm sure it's the same way everywhere, but our, our weather here is so variable. We we might have a wet year. We might get, you know, our average is about 18, 19 inches a year, and we'll get, we might get 30, but we have, we'll have two big hailstorms. And um, so for us, it's so variable, but it all comes back down to the profit. And uh, so, you know, as far as making our plans for those, for those years, coming out of those tough years and, or even coming out of a good year, um, you know, we're, we're at the point where we don't need to expand our equipment lineup anymore. We're just basically maintaining, you know, the same kind of, if we were to trade up is that all that would amount to is just trading to a newer model. We don't, you know, I mean, our planner's pretty much big enough as it is. And uh, so that makes it, I think when you've got those tough years, that kind of makes it a little less stressful on your decision-making since you know, you're not having to, you know, get bigger unless, you know, we were to pick up, pick up more land but that's that's gotten pretty tough here as you know over the last few years so we're not we're not too we're not too expectant to uh to look to get more land since it's gotten so so costly so um you know i would say a key for you know is key for a guy making a decision as far as his equipment upgrades is you know if you're if you're at a level where you're happy you're at a level where your equipment needs you know meet all of your meet all the necessities and getting your crop in and out in a timely manner. I think that decreases your stress on, on trying to make those decisions. So, uh, you know, we've, we'll trade, like I said, we'll trade that sprayer. We've traded a sprayer pretty regular, you know, on a five-year basis, kind of regardless of what the, uh, I mean, unless we had some kind of epic wreck, um, we kind of, we'll trade stuff on a regular, um, interval. So, you know, a sprayer maybe every five years and, um, as we'll, 
you know, those, one thing about those sprayers is they do hold their value pretty well. And um, we're pretty, you know, that that's that's not a too hard of a decision for us to make. As far as harvest equipment, you know, anymore for us, you know, we can't haul it off fast enough. You know, we've got two combines and we can bear during corn season, we've got, you know, our co-op is who we sell to and they've got all, they've basically got all of the terminals in our County. And, um, we can't, we've got four trucks and we can't haul it off. If we have a good corn crop, we can't haul it off fast enough as it is. So, um, really, you know, we have usually about a couple thousand acres of corn and, and, um, you know, four and one combine, if it's 240, 50 bushel corn is, and it is close as these terminals are to our farms, um, we can barely keep it hauled off as it is. So, you know, I've, I've been in the, in the mindset over the last few years that, um, you know, we're, I mean, I know they're going to find more and more efficient ways to do stuff, but, um, we're kind of maxed out on, you know, the combines are, I mean, they can get bigger if they want to, but we just can't haul it off fast enough. So we're going to have to have more trucks, more drivers. And, um, so like, I was listening to your episode with Jared and talking about autonomous and everything. And, I mean, I'm sure it'll come to that. I just, you know, there's so many variables in a, in a field that, um, you know, I, I just don't know. I'm sure they'll find a way they, they keep, they keep doing it, but, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see less that diminish that uh, rate of return on your cost is, I don't know. I think that line is starting to level out if not even go down a little bit because, you know, the law of diminishing returns at, at some point you can get as big as you want, but your return is not going to, not going to show a positive effect. So, you know, long story short, since I've already told a long story, (laughs) um, you know, we're, as far as our operation, we're pretty content with our capacity levels on our equipment. So, uh, you know, it's that, which in in essence makes our decision-making in those harder years, a little, little less stressful. We can, we can hold on to that equipment another year if we have to. So when you look at your equipment, like you talked about there, so you're looking at some combines you have that are, that are older combines, when do you start making the decision about the cost of reconditioning to what it's going to cost you to recondition that unit to what else or what it's going to cost you to, to trade, for example? How does, right. that, how does that start playing into your decision? Right. Yeah, I, I've always been in the mindset where there's kind of a, a, kind of a, a point of no return. You know, I mean, right. you're gonna, you can eventually always sell it. But say like that older combine that we have, you know, it's getting 10 years old. And we've never, we've hardly ever kept a combine that long, but it's been reconditioned. I mean, the, the bin, you know, the, the underneath the augers have all been replaced. And I mean, it's, I mean, all the wear stuff has been replaced. So that combine, you know, it's when you, when you've gone that deep into it, you kind of don't have to necessarily get, you know, get rid of it. Um, you can, it's probably, you know, it's probably still worth it. But once again, if you, and really, to be honest, don't tell my nephew this, but we could probably do without it. <laughs> I got a nephew, he's 16 years old. And this boy loves farming like I've never seen and loves driving, loves driving equipment. But we've got a, that's an 8010. We've got an 8230 case and um, it's probably five or six years old or no, about five years old. And, um, you know, like I said, it, it cuts more than we can haul off. So, um, you know, as far as a, like a, a harvest equipment and the combine, you know, if you're, you know, if you've replaced probably, I don't know, over 40, 50% of your wear places, in my opinion, you're starting to get close to uh, holding on to that thing. Um, I know like a lot of people, it's kind of like, basically it's like trading a pickup. You get to a hundred thousand miles. It's like, what do I want to do? Do I want to trade the thing or, you know, before it rolls over a hundred or do I want to go ahead and, you know, just keep, keep running it and maybe go buy a work pickup, you know, and, and, and then park that, park that nicer pickup that you put all those miles on it, and, which is exactly what I've done. We've, I mean, as we all know, those pickups have gotten just outrageously high. So we've got, you know, kind of quote unquote our town pickup and we'll kind of park it. We've got, you know, little half tons. Of course, we've got ATVs that really, that we use the heck out of to check sprinklers. And uh, those ATVs really save on, uh, on your pickups because we've got all those sprinkler tracks to cross over and, uh, course obviously the mud doesn't do any doesn't do any uh favors when it comes to u joints and axles and everything so um you know i think it's really kind of bulls i mean it's common sense it takes a little educated you know you got to be a little educated about your decisions on this stuff but you know is that combine 
going to work well. So, you know, theoretically, if it runs over a hundred thousand miles, like your pickup, I mean, that's, I think that's the breaking point is a, you know, a 30, 40, 30 to 40%, you know, revamp on your wear parts and all that. I mean, if you start plugging holes with the tape and everything, you're probably, you know, you're getting close to making that decision in my opinion. And, um, you know, and as far as like a sprayer, um, you know, as long as the, uh, the wiring is kind of the first stuff to go and we've already been splicing a lot. So we might, we probably might be looking to trade that here after this season. Um, it's getting, it's getting a few bugs in it and it's been a really good machine. It's just, you know, it's had its day and we might be looking to, and I, on the sprayer, I would, it's a hundred foot boom. I would love to get a 120 foot boom just to, you know, get across it a little faster. So, uh, anything to, anything to, create less time in the, in the field is always fine with me. Yeah. All right. So the tariff issue uh, today was a uh, drop dead day for new tariffs to be added. I haven't seen anything that they've solved anything. So this tariff trade war thing is the gift that keeps on giving. So how is that playing into what you're doing as far as how you look at your, uh, your operation and, and how does that change your plan? I guess looking towards the end of the year. It's, uh, it's exciting to say, <laughs> to say the least, you know, um, when a market can, you know, it's such a different paradigm now. I mean, a, a guy can release, you know, a, a tweet of, you know, 150 characters and literally change the entire market in Chicago. And, um, so do what? So that's just amazing that one little tweet like that can completely either wreck the market or blow the market up. One of the two, it, that's just amazes me how it works. It really is. And, and, you know, during back during the campaign, I wasn't a fan of, I uh, wasn't a fan of Trump. I, and I obviously wasn't a fan of Clinton, but uh, I, cause I just didn't believe him. I just didn't think he was going to do all that stuff because his previous commentary on political stuff over the years, I'm like, this guy's not, you know, not conservative at all. But um, I've been, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised for the most part. Obviously, he says some boneheaded stuff, but we all do. Um, but, you know, when you have such a, a, a cute, event just during the middle of the day completely unexpected whereas you know we're always used to usda reports and all that well that's all planned out and it's usually already um factored into the market so um you know really and you know whenever he does a tweet i mean it's usually good for a day you know you might get a 10 cent bump in beans or five cents in corn or something but uh Usually it kind of levels back off and everybody kind of chills out for, you know, chills out for a couple of days. But, um, you know, as far as making your decisions, I think it all goes back to kind of having a, you know, I don't think it changes a guy's marketing plan too much. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of different avenues out there. You've got options and futures and which, uh, here we're at on our, on our food corn contracts that we have with our co-op. We, uh, I mean, they, they price everything. I mean, we call them up whenever we want to price and, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty workable situation, but you know, there's always that, uh, I've read about that marketing plan where you do 20, 20, 20 or 20 throughout the year. And, uh, nine times out of 10, it's going to be the right thing to do. I mean, how many times are you going to catch the market when it hits $8 corn? You know, that's, it's just a one in a lifetime. <laughs> the time it did was an 08 and we had, we didn't, we already had everything priced at like five something. And then, the market shot up and we're like, Oh hell, what did we do? And then in the second week of August, we got an epic hell storm. And, um, after, after all was said and done between this insurance and the chopping it and everything, we could have sold her all for $8 and it still wouldn't have been as good. So, uh, you know, you just, there's all those variables that you just can't foresee. You just got to take your protection. So, um, you know, I mean, corn's come off a whole lot, but you know, it's come off what, it was at 425, you know, and now we're at what 370. I mean, that's, you know, that's 50 cents, but I mean, in the scheme of things, that's not just, I mean, individually, it's not huge. I mean, it's not, I mean, in my opinion, I don't think it's going to go from making a huge profit to a complete loss. Um, there's so many other factors involved. You might have a, you know, a huge crop on your farm and, you know, the Midwest might have a, might have a wheat crop, but uh, usually, usually it's the other way around. They usually have a great crop and you have a crappy crop and it's $3 corn. So but yeah, it's a, you know, the tariffs, you know, this is one of the things I was worried, you know, kind of backing off when he was talking about it during the campaign. I was like, you know, that's, yeah, there's China screwing us and all, you know, all these trade imbalances are obviously there. 
But, you know, don't be surprised when he starts tariffing stuff and they retaliate. But, you know, usually what America's used to is we're usually threatening something and we always back off. Well, that's not the case this time. He's actually following through, which I think in the end, I mean, it's basically who's going to, it's going to be a case of who screams uncle first. And that, that's probably nothing prophetic or anything. I mean, we probably already all know that, but you know, China is probably more willing to let its economy. I don't know. I think they have less pressure in China for that economy to stay, uh, to stay rolling along just for the simple fact they're, basic freedoms of speech and everything are a lot more limited over there. And, you know, they are, you know, the media and everything in, in this country already hate Trump. So, I mean, they have no problem on beating him down on, you know, they might, they'll probably want to, they'll probably go find a farmer that doesn't support him and interview him and tell him how he's ruined his life. Cause all these tariffs, you know, it's just, I mean, perception is everything, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's the tariffs, I mean, they're probably the only avenue, maybe one of the, I don't think they're the only avenue that Trump has, but there's a certain way to go about things. And um, maybe he's doing stuff, you know, under the, not under the table, but off the radar where people don't know about. So, I mean, like, I think beans, beans are up today. Corn's up today. That was, and of course, like you said, that, that tariff thing was already planned for today. So that was probably already factored into the market. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, to say to say he's a uh, boring would be a lie. Yeah, uh, who would have thought tariff and trade talk? Well, I mean, you could get you know a six pack and talk it you know into the night and just you know not run out of material. So it's a uh, yeah, it, get your popcorn because it's pretty. I don't know if it's exciting is the correct word. It's damn sure entertaining. Yeah. Now we I have a doing my podcast where I have a after the bell segment with with Chip Mellinger from Bully Fragger Marketing and. And they have a. <clears throat> we've been talking about this for like the last month. Where, when was that? Like, was it a month ago or so? When he came back from China, or they got done talking, and, and the trade deal was so good that what was this? What was the exact wording? Something to the fact of, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the farmers are going to love me because China was going to buy more than we can produce, or something like that. And, oh, then, right, and the yeah. market just went like a rocket, you know, and it took off and. Stayed like that way for a week, and then all of a sudden it went from agree to disagree about it by Friday, and then everybody, the market just kind of started falling off from there. But I, I guess from my opinion, yeah, you, where, where I'm standing at, I've noticed some in some very acute cases where, and maybe I'm reading into it more than I I should be, but when I watched some auction values over the last couple weeks or whatever. Um, Combines, especially, I, I feel have have slipped have slipped as far as value goes on the auction market anyway, which is going to be there's correlations to retail market based on what happens in the auction market too. So I've noticed that in the last couple of weeks, and I could be just looking for something, but I just noticed that, and I feel like some of these tariff things have have started to play effect on on, on slightly into what the value of equipment is. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's like I think it was a key what you said. It's an acute it's an acute environment, especially on the auction block, because like last year down here, you know, on the South Plains, um, they've come out with that big cotton stripper, Baylor, you know, that bails the round bells. And I mean, it's an awesome piece of equipment, but the damn thing, six hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you know, and um, who can you know, only those custom guys or, you know, a huge, you know, big time operator can justify that. And uh we, uh, we used to have a big setup of cotton equipment back in the early 2000s. We had, you know, a couple strippers and buggies and builders and all that. And, um, you know, we, I mean, it's just, we had some awful years with cottons. And we ended, we ended up getting rid of all of it over over this time span. Well, we were fresh out of uh, cotton equipment. So last year we went and bought, we were going to buy a, a baler. And um, we, we just, we just backed out. We could not, we just could not justify having it. I mean, Cotton harvest is not just terribly fun, but it's not that bad. So we went and bought, you know, the conventional style, the basket, uh, the basket stripper and a buggy and a builder. And we, you know, it took a while. And um, unfortunately, the cotton got to say this is ironic is an understatement. But to say one of our crops last year got hurt by too much rain is uh, unbelievable. But uh, we uh, we had a six week harvest and, and the cotton was just kind of at the best fair. And, um, so, you know, as far as, as far as the equipment sales of the auction block, you know, last year we went, 
to one in Plainview, which is north of Lubbock. And um, we bought our, they have a big harvest equipment sale. And, uh, you know, I think the, uh, you know, we got it at a fairly reasonable price, you know, because that, you know, that baler was, was out and, and real big, but you started having these other farmers that were not, you know, they just couldn't bite the bullet on a multi, you know, over half a million dollar piece of equipment. I mean, yeah, it's, and then the, not to mention the fire problems they had on them. I mean, I don't know, a dozen of them burned down in the Texas panhandle alone last year. And we almost burned our old conventional style stripper a couple times down because the uh, micronair and the cotton, the cotton fiber was so light that it was flying anywhere that, uh, that the wind would allow it to go. So, um, you know, I think, you know, equipment sales, I think it's a real acute, a real acute subject, you know, Midwest, they might be 10% higher than they might be here in the Texas Panhandle, South Plains. So, um, you know, as far the tariff, you know, the tariff stuff makes for good headlines and it might make for a good market move and over 12 hours. And like you say, a couple of days later, I mean, the, the new war off and, and the fundamentals come back into play. I mean, we've got the globe as mountains of wheat and, you know, we've got, carryover of corn and soybeans like always and you know i just I, sometimes i wonder if he's just trying to create new campaign commercials you know for when 2020 comes around but uh um i think that the tariff talk is you know as far as the market's concerned it could be long term as far as its effects but you know i don't think a guy can base his you better not be basing your all your marketing decisions off of one tweet I mean, that's, that's probably obvious. I mean, most people know that, but you know, that's, and that's like any other, whatever, whatever a story comes out, that's, I mean, that's as long as the market's traded, that's always been a rule. You don't, whatever little news story comes out, you don't base your whole marketing decision on one little story. So yeah, it's a, it kind of goes back to common sense. Having a plan and working that plan moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Same thing year in, year out. Nothing changes, but Okay, so if you're looking for farm equipment or irrigation equipment or whatever it is that you're looking for, how do you base that judgment, and, and what are you looking for in that deal that you're that you're going to deal with? Competition's a big thing as far as your dealers, and like in our area, the competition's gotten quite a bit less. There's only one or two guys in town, and the guys really got to. I mean, once again, it's common sense. Guys really needs to shop around for for his equipment needs, you know, especially in your. I mean, anything, you know, and. Um, it's just, you know, basically, once again, common sense on stuff. A farmer really needs to – loyalty is great to your, you know, your ag service suppliers, but, you know, guys, you know, he's got to look out for his family and, and his farm. So he, he really needs to shop it around and, um, you know, educate, you know, educate themselves. Um, it's, you know, it's – at one time it was kind of funny. It's like, oh, I'm going to go buy it from old man Johnson. You know, he's a dealer down there at John Deere and, you know, he'll probably screw me. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, that was probably funny a long time ago, but you can't do that anymore. You've got to be educated. You've got to be systematic about how you're buying your stuff. And, uh, you know, those old anecdotes about just, you know, this whole separation between the farmer and the ag, the, you know, the seed dealer and all these guys just trying to screw them, you know, that's just really not, a, it's not funny anymore. It's, it's serious business. So, you but, know, guys just kind of, he's got to be, um, you know, intelligent about his decisions. And obviously everybody that is farming is, otherwise they wouldn't be farming. Right. Okay. So that's a good point. That's, that's something I, I hear a lot from, you know, when I listen to podcasts, other ag related podcasts. And when I listen to, um, just guys coming in the store and, and salesmen talk about stuff, the loyalty thing, I don't, I mean, everyone acts like it's the devil, you know, because all we, you know, I used to sell to your dad all the time, and now you want to shop me and everybody else. Well, I think to your point, that's, that's I mean, why wouldn't you go out and, and try to find the best deal you could that made the most sense for your operation, right? Sure. So, as you look at that now, I mean, how much, how much of your, when you start looking at equipment, how much of stuff is it, is it brand specific or is it more... How much of your decision is brand specific versus the overall cost operation? Well, you know, we're mostly, we've been mostly red forever. Um, we, we've had, we've had some, we've had a green combine and, and a couple other green, you know, green implements, but uh, we've been mostly red and, you know, at this point, um, they all do the same thing for the most part. Um, you know, one may cost a little more just for the simple fact of the color it is, but um, you know, in my, in my, just in my opinion, 
man, that service is, is huge. And uh, down here, our nearest case dealer is in Amarillo, which I mean is 45 minutes away, which maybe for some people that's not very far, but we used to have one right here in Hereford. We had a deer dealership, a case dealership right here in Hereford. And uh, we have neither one of those now. So we've either got to go to uh, Amarillo or Dalhart, which is about an hour and a half away. And that's, you know, that's pretty aggravating. I know a lot of the local dealers probably don't have a lot of decision over that. It's the corporate side. But, um, you know, that's, uh, that service to me is, is, uh, is pretty big. If I call you up and, you know, I don't care if you got to fake it. You better act like you're happy to hear from me because if you don't, and I've just had a breakdown on a tractor, I'm going to be pretty pissed off. So <laughs> I'm already in a bad mood as it is. So, you know, between, between the customer service and, um, you know, that's, you know, like I said, case and deer and I mean, most all that stuff, it does the same thing anymore. It, it's got more horsepower than you'll ever need anymore. And, you know, as long as that stuff, you know, like the, obviously it's all computer now. So, um, you, I want a knowledgeable dealer. that's going to be able to, you know, I, and it amazes me. I mean, the guys we deal with are, are, are pretty knowledgeable and, um, you know, they can do that stuff over the phone. I guess they're just, that's just, they're just more mechanically minded than I am, but that knowledge is, uh, knowledge from your dealer, knowledge from your technicians is, is pretty huge. So, uh, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a biggie for me. And then because the equipment kind of, you know, does, you know, sells itself as far as, I mean, you know, stuff's got a billion horsepower now. I mean, yeah, that's fine. That's everything does now. So, you know, who can do it with the best service, you know, and be, be, be pretty competitive on their price. And, um, you know, if, if I, if we change from one color to the other, it's doesn't really, I mean, we like red, we've always done it, but you know, it doesn't have to be red. Yeah. And, I think, you know, a lot of guys, they'll, they'll do green or dye, you know, before they change colors, but well, I mean, I guess that's fine, but it may not be necessarily be the best decision for you, especially if you don't have a dealer within, you know, hundred miles. Yeah. So uh, that color. That's, that's, so, yeah. in my opinion, that's what it all kind of boils down to is how well we're going to take care of that customer. You know, right. it's, we, we sell, you know, I'm a John Deere dealer and we sell John Deere stuff and, um, we have 16 locations in our in our area that we cover, which basically, you know, we go from the South Dakota border all the way down to about all the lower two thirds of Colorado. And, okay. You know, our our stores, it, it's just our dealer network. I think is what's made us successful more than anything. Is is the right. fact that we have we have awesome technicians. We got great parts people and everything else that goes into that. And but our our network of dealerships is very close. You know, very close to everyone where they can get that parts and service. Yeah, and I mean, and I'm sure from your perspective to get a lot of good technicians, I'm sure that's a, a never-ending battle because I know that kind of high-skilled positions pr- probably hard to not only find but to uh, maintain and you know keep them home. So, uh, well, it's just harder every day, every year to find young young folks coming back in that that want to go be a technician. Sure is. And, you know, most probably are in small towns too. So um, that's, you're almost fighting. That's almost a bigger fight than, than anything else. It's just the simple fact of where it is. Yeah. That, I think that's probably our biggest thing that we have to overcome more than anything is, you know, some of these towns that we, we get people to move to is, you know, they're small little towns really just kind of, they're out there. I mean, you, you have to, they're just, you know, you know, it's like out there in the middle of the, a farm country there's a small little town and then you drive a little bit more and there's another small little town and then you drive a little bit more and there's another small little town and then you get to to the walmart you know that's a hour right. from where you live you know and so right i mean it is what it is and it's, it's always been that way though you know it's never changed i mean it's nothing yeah. new to anyone but it's no a, it's a struggle it's a struggle to find good people and like for you know? yeah and like for us i mean we have amarillo which is 45 minutes away and that's a lot of people work in Hereford and live in Amarillo. You know, Amarillo is a pretty good sized city. I mean, it's not, you know, a mega city, but you know, it's almost a couple of hundred thousand people. So that's, you know, that kind of, kind of keeps people somewhat in the area as far as doing these jobs that are all only in small towns. So if you have a, if you have a pretty good size metropolitan area, not even a huge one, you know, nearby that, that kind of, that kind of helps you out quite a bit. So. But even, even when I lived down here in Wichita at the deer dealer down here, it was, uh, you know, Wichita is 400,000, and then you take the surrounding area and put it together, you're close to about a million people or so. Um, we still had a hard time finding technicians. 
right well yeah so i mean that's just that's just the nature of the beast right now is is finding is just finding that you know these kids go through school they go through school through high school and and everyone everyone these counselors pump into their head that they need to go get a college degree which they they do i'm not gonna say that they don't need to go to college but there's technicians that make as much money as as any other i mean we got a hundred thousand dollar a year guys that make that are technicians and they don't no one tells them that when they're getting out of high school, and a lot of these kids would probably be better suited at a trade school, doing what they, you know, what they're really good at. I mean, there's some just naturally mechanically inclined folks that sure. get pushed into something they don't want to do five years down the road. Yeah, I mean, I'll go out and say it. Every, not everybody needs to go to college. I mean, that's just a simple fact. And you know, you, you say the technicians, you know, are making as much money as a four-year degree guy. That's true, but they also don't have, you know, eighty thousand dollars in student loan debt. Exactly. I mean, that that's massive. Yeah. And um, it's you know, it's not like it used to. I mean, it used to be you could go to college for, you know, like when I went to call, I went to Texas Tech, and you know, I back in uh, '99 to '03, and you know, my tuition and everything, it was probably. 60% of what it is now. And, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I did fine in college, you know, but I'm not, you know, I'm not any genius by any stretch, but, uh, you know, I mean, that, to say, to say that everybody doesn't need to go to college is not a slide on anybody. It's just, it's just not a fit for everyone. I mean, say you go to college for one or two years and you say, that's not for me. Well, there goes what 40 grand, 30 grand and two years out of your life that you could have been, you know, doing something else, making money or doing a trade school, you know, trade school always kind of got a bad reputation as well. That's where all the kind of the dummies go. That's absolutely untrue. You've got some highly, highly skilled, high-minded mechanical people, electrical people, mathematical people that go to these places that design stuff at trade schools. And, you know, so uh, the, the trade school is way underappreciated. And, um, it, and it shows in our small towns where you're begging for people that are qualified to do you know, run computers and run, you know, work over tractors and everything. So it's to say the trade schools are for dummies is absolutely untrue. Yeah. The first tool our technicians grab is a laptop. They don't, yeah. you know, before they do anything else. And half the stuff they diagnose over the over the phone because they get an alert that comes in via some cell tower somewhere to the uh, to the shop manager, you know, and then right. he, he diagnosed it there and, and they move on. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of a... It's a sad thing that there's not more emphasis put on, you know, like me, for example, I'm, I'm not the most mechanical guy in the world. Um, I, I can fumble my way around and, and not break things more than I fix it. But, um, <laughs> but I can, but my brother, on the other hand, he can, he's the most mechanical person I know. And he, he found a good fit for his life, what he's doing. And he's, he's making a really good living and he didn't go to college. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a perfect example. I mean, you know, it's four year degree is, I mean, it's obviously a great thing, but it also has, I mean, there's strings attached. If you, if you can't, you know, scholarship your way through it or your parents can't help you out a whole lot through the way, I mean, and you're settling yourself with a lot of, a lot of debt. You're already starting out in the hole and say you want to go back and farm. Well, everybody knows you, you're borrowing money most of the time when you're farming. So, I mean, why, you know, why saddle that on yourself? So, and, yep. um, yeah, things have definitely changed from what they were back when I was same time frame you were, and I was in college, same same exact time frame. Sure. So. But yeah. yeah, so things have changed, and and we're and we're gonna have to figure out how that whole thing works moving forward. Yeah, it's once again, it's it, it's a uh, common sense. You gotta think things through, be intellectual about it, and you know, well, you'll have you'll have stuff that you don't expect, but in the end, you know. More times than not, you'll you'll average out to a win. Yep. All right, Brent. Well, I feel like we've uh, knocked this one in the head, man. So, if guys want to find your podcast, the Dry Line Dry Line Farm Podcast, where would they find that at? Well, you can find it all over the place, Casey. It's uh, of course, it's on Apple Podcast, on iTunes. It'll be on Google Play. It's on SoundCloud. Um, we've also got a website, drylinefarmerpodcast.libson.com. And uh, if you want to email us. Um, it's drylinefarmerpodcast at gmail.com. We don't have our own do- domain name yet. So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, we're not that big yet, but, uh, <laughs> we're still on Gmail, but, uh, yeah. So check us out there. Um, it's, I think you'll really, it's, it's a good little, uh, 
it's a good little escape from stress as a farmer and just life in general. So uh, y'all check us out there. You'll, I think you'll, I think you'll like what you hear. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoy it. I like listening to it, and then I I wait for the uh, every week for it to drop, man. So I uh, greatly appreciate you being on my podcast. Well, I appreciate you having me on. All right, man. Well, Brent, take care of yourself, and I will uh, see you out in the Twitterverse. All right. right. Thanks a lot, Casey. Take care easy, bud. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, the premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America. Get a grip. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at movingironpodcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find After the Bell Chip Nellinger and Tax and Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Moving Iron LLC has a website you can visit at movingironllc.com. Here you can find information for the 2018 Moving Iron Summit in Las Vegas, past and current episodes of Moving Iron Podcast, and articles from Moving Iron Blog. Throughout the year, there'll be guest bloggers writing on various topics from their point of view. If you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you.